The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading comes from Acts 11 and Galatians 2. Let's hope there are no hard names. Acts 11, 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report came of this to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God... He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples first called Christians." Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians 2. Yes, we'll touch Acts 11 very quickly, but we will spend most of our time in Galatians chapter 2, so that's probably where you will want to be as we enter into this, the third week of the season of Advent, which, as we heard earlier, bears the theme of joy. I mean, even, even the color of the candle on our Advent wreath shifts this week from a, from a dark purple to a, a bright rose or a bright pink in order to remind us that amidst the darkness of this season of waiting and longing, the bright light of the joy of Christ is drawing nearer to us. The, the advent of Christ is almost here. And yet, and yet, even though we change a candle's color, and even though we talk about this bright theme of joy, the darkness remains, does it not? Like we feel that? The waiting, the longing, like it doesn't go away. It's like the carol says, this is a weary world. And we have a hard time singing the next part of that line often, don't we? This weary world rejoices. I mean, if we're, if we're honest, 
On weeks like this, all of our talk of joy, it can feel kind of fake because if we're honest, joy is really hard to feel at this point in the journey. Like that's not just true of the season of Advent, it's true of our lives. I have felt it as we've gone through this Advent series, that it's really hard to feel joy at this point walking through our Advent. So our Advent series is simply entitled Advent for All. Specifically, we've been looking at the intersection of Advent and racism. Because if Advent is for all, Christ is for all, the gospel is for all, then what happens when racism and the gospel collide? And to answer that question, two weeks ago, we began a journey through Scripture, a journey that took us from Genesis to Joppa. If you remember on that journey, we saw the way that God created people to be, image bearers for his own glory. We saw that in Genesis. But then as we journeyed to Joppa with Jonah, we saw the effects of sin and specifically how racism, what it looks like when racism enters into the story of human history. And then we saw in Acts chapter 10, Peter's journey in Joppa how God takes Joppa's own story from Jonah to Peter and flips it on his head. We saw through Peter's experience, God take the sledgehammer of the gospel to racism through sending his son for all. We saw the truth that if Christ has come for all, then Christmas, Christ's coming, should kill racism. And that reality is the reality that shines brightly from our pink candle over here. That's a reality that should fill us with joy. But if we're honest, joy is hard to feel at this point in the journey because the darkness of racism remains throughout our history. Even today, the longing for ethnic partiality to end, that longing hasn't gone away. So sure, we can change a candle's color we can claim the theme of joy. But honestly, all this talk of Christmas killing racism feels kind of fake. Like, it's hard to feel joy at this point in the journey. And shades, that's because our journey isn't done. We've made it from Genesis to Joppa. This morning, we need to make it from Joppa to Antioch. Because, because it's, in, it's in this leg of the journey through Scripture, it's in this leg that I think we will see why the darkness remains and why we can cling to joy anyway. So, see this with me. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, the apostle Paul writes, but when Cephas, that's Peter, Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. To his face. Because he stood condemned. In other words, he was in the wrong. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. All right. Let me give you the backdrop of the scene that we're seeing right here. We actually need two backdrops. We need the backdrop of Joppa and we need the backdrop of Antioch. Two weeks ago in Acts chapter 10, 
We got that backdrop of Joppa. We saw Peter in Joppa receive a vision from God. And through this vision, God helped Peter to see more clearly that all people are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through keeping the law with all of its dietary restrictions or its requirement of circumcision or keeping Sabbath and on and on and on. No, God confirmed Christ fulfilled the law and so all are saved through faith in him. Jews and Gentiles alike. Remember Gentiles, it's that Greek word ethnos, means ethnicities, people groups. All people saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw Peter figure out that that means all the barriers Throughout all of his life that had ever kept him from socializing with Gentiles, all of those barriers had been torn down by the gospel. So, in Acts 10, when God called Peter to take the gospel to Gentiles, he did. And in Acts 10 and verse 34, the first words out of Peter's mouth as he preaches to Gentiles were this, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter's like, I get it. I get we're all saved through faith in Christ. God shows no partiality to Jews. God shows no partiality to anybody of any race. I get it. The coming of Christ put a death nail in Peter's prejudice. Christmas killed racism. That's the backdrop of Joppa. But from that point in Acts, the gospel keeps spreading to other places. And it keeps spreading primarily among the Jews, until it gets to Antioch. Just one chapter later, Acts 11, we read this, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so a man named Stephen was put to death in Jerusalem, and it scatters a whole bunch of believers from Jerusalem, and they go all over the place. It says they arose, and they went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word, the gospel, to no one except the Jews. So it's primarily spreading amongst the Jewish people. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks. In other words, a different people group, Gentiles. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Antioch, Jews and Gentiles alike, both coming to faith. Word gets back to Jerusalem, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Go check it out, Barnabas. Barnabas, gotta love Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. He's a great dude. Just look, verse 23. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And what did he do? He encouraged them. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. But Barnabas doesn't want to do all this work in Antioch on his own. So, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. We more commonly call him by his Greek name, Paul. So he goes, and when he had found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch becomes the first multicultural church. The the gospel conquers 
these long-standing ethnic divides. And these people do something that no one had yet seen. These, these people from, of different ethnicities, they become a family because of their connection to Christ. I mean, is it any wonder that this is the first place that followers of Jesus were called Christians? Christ's people. There, there is no other way to identify this group. You, you can't call them by their ethnicity. Well, it's Jews. Well, it's Gentiles. You can't call them by their social status. You can't, you've got no classification by which you can label this group of people. No, not their ethnicity, and you can't do it by country, you can't do it by nationality. They needed a new word. And one word, one, they needed a new word that could explain what, what identified this group, what held this community together. And the only word they could come up with was Christ, which they didn't mean as a compliment. But they said, those are Christians. They are Christ's people. That's the backdrop of Antioch. Now, now in Galatians 2, we see Peter journey from the heights of gospel joy that he discovered in Joppa. God shows no partiality. Gentiles come into faith. We see him go from there to Antioch. Because Peter hears what's happening in Antioch. Jews and Gentiles, united in one church by Christ. This, Peter gets excited. This, this is what God taught him in his vision. This is what he got a foretaste of in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, when he shared the gospel with the Gentiles and they came to faith. So of course, Peter doesn't just want the vision. He doesn't just want a foretaste. He wants to go to Antioch and see this reality in fullness. Jew and Gentile, one new people in Jesus. So Peter goes, and he sees it, and he celebrates it. Galatians 2.12 tells us Peter was eating with the Gentiles. We, we don't understand how big of a deal this was. Like, yes, this means that Peter was sitting down with Gentiles, which he would not have done before, but but even more than that, it means he's eating their food. Like Peter's tasting bacon for the first time. Pulled pork and shrimp. He's like, the gospel is good news, y'all. <laughs> Every Christmas, my family, we eat sausage balls. Why? Because Jesus came so we can eat pork, y'all. He's... It means even more than he's just sharing their food, though. It means that he's also sharing the Lord's Supper with them. Like in the, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was, was commonly taken in conjunction with a, a, a larger meal. You'd sit down, you'd share a meal, and then as a part of that, you would take the Lord's Supper together. Shades, see this. On, on just an earthly level, on just an earthly level, Peter's actions showed that he's accepting the Gentiles as friends. In ancient Near Eastern culture, table, table fellowship was a big deal. It was a sign of acceptance, a sign of friendship. But, but more than that, 
We're not just seeing that he's accepting them as friends on the earthly level. No, we're seeing a heavenly level, a spiritual level. Peter's actions show that he accepts these Gentiles, not just as friends, but as brothers and sisters, equal family in Christ. And that's why what happens next is such a big deal. Verse 12 tells us that certain men came from James. In other words, they came from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church where James was a leader. These men do not accurately represent James or his theology because we find out they are a part of the circumcision party and James was not. The circumcision party was basically a group that tried to combine Jesus with the Old Testament law keeping. They were well, yeah, Jesus is great, but to be truly saved, you also have to keep the law, keep kosher, be circumcised if you're a man, keep Sabbath, and so forth, and so on. So when these men show up, their presence exerts pressure, and Peter feels it, like the, like the disapproving glares as he chomps down on like some pulled pork. We don't know if they say anything. We don't know what specific actions they take, but we do know what Peter feels, fear. And so he draws back. Look at verse 12 one more time. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing. Fearing the circumcision party. I thought Christ's coming, Christmas, I thought Christmas killed Peter's racism. I thought from his own mouth, he said, I understand it now, I get it now. God shows no partiality, so neither should, should I. How does Peter go from the joy that we saw in Joppa to drawing back into the dark right here in Antioch? Shades? There, while there is a lot that we don't know, because this passage doesn't say everything, there are at least two things, two things that I think we see pretty clearly right here, two aspects of Peter's prejudice, a personal aspect and a systemic one. A personal aspect and a systemic one. First, personally. There is a personal aspect to Peter's sin in Antioch. In other words, his experience in Joppa didn't perfect him. Like the vision that he had from God, giving him the truth of the gospel, the experience he had in Cornelius' house, none of that perfected Peter. None of that meant Peter would never again struggle with ethnic sin. Knowing the truth of God's word, knowing Jesus, Shades, does not eliminate our fight with sin. It begins it. It equips and empowers us in it. And it guarantees victory in the end. But our fight with sin won't be eliminated until the end. And Shades, here's the deal. Nearly every Christian I know is willing to admit that that is true with every single sin except racism. In other words, nearly every Christian I know 
is willing to admit that coming to know Jesus Christ, growing in the truth of this word, doesn't mean I no longer fight with lust. I still fight that. Yeah, I still fight greed. I still have to fight anger. I still have to fight jealousy. I still have to fight self-centeredness. But racism, there's not a racist bone in my body. I have been cured of every form of ethnic partiality. Why? Why do we treat racism differently than every other sin, pretending that we ourselves are better than the apostle Peter himself. Peter still struggled with this, personally. And at least part of the reason for that, at least part of the reason, is that Peter's prejudice had been instilled and reinforced systemically. This is the second aspect of Peter's prejudice we need to see. Second, systemically. Peter had grown up within a political, religious, and cultural system that promoted and reinforced separation between Jews and Gentiles on every level. They didn't eat together. They didn't fellowship together. They they didn't worship together. Oh, sure, Gentiles could come to the temple, but they... They had a special court that was all their own. They couldn't go as far into the temple as the Jewish people could. And that Gentile court, do you remember, do you remember when Jesus clears the temple? And he comes in and they're like, there's money changers everywhere. They're selling animals, all this kind of stuff. That's happening in that court designated for Gentile worship. In other words, Peter grew up in an atmosphere where they thought so little about the area designated for Gentile worship, they turned it into a barnyard marketplace. How is anybody supposed to pray in there? And that's why Jesus drove them out. Do you remember what he said after he did it? He quoted the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 56 and verse seven. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Go back and read Isaiah 56. It's God himself talking about bringing the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnicities, the peoples, bringing them in to be a part of his people. Jesus' point in quoting Isaiah is that the court of the Gentiles was not about excluding the nations, it was about including them. There's a place for you here. There is a place for you to come and to worship Yahweh. This is a house of prayer for you too. That, That was even the point of Israel being set apart by their food laws, by circumcision, by Sabbath. All of that was meant to set them apart so they might shine as a light to the nations. But instead, they turned all of it into a system to use against the nations. In in such soil, systemic prejudice grew. What do I mean? Let me get specific. What do I mean by systemic prejudice? I don't just mean that the Jews had official laws, policies, and practices on the books they were prejudiced against Gentiles. They, they took the Old Testament law and caked on tradition and other laws in order to reinforce and emphasize separation. That is systemic. But I don't just mean that they had those laws, policies, and practices on the book. I do mean that, but I mean more. I mean that all of that resulted in systemic attitudes, cultural norms, 
assumptions, values, narratives that persist long after laws and policies change. Is that not precisely what we're seeing with Peter? The gospel has torn down for Peter every policy that kept him away from Gentiles. And he knows that. He's not confused over that truth. That's why in verse 13, Paul says he's acting hypocritically. Because Peter knows what's true. He knows that the gospel has ripped down every single policy or barrier that could keep him and Gentiles apart. So what's pulling Peter back? Is it not the pressure of cultural norms? The circumcision party pulls him back from gospel truth. It's a really good thing that we don't have parties in our culture today that would threaten to pull Christians back from gospel truth. And I mean that on the right and the left, Shades. Neither one of those parties can be equated with the kingdom of God. And every Christian should have the ability to critique their own party in light of the kingdom of Christ. What's pulling him back? Is it not these pressure of, of cultural norms, assumptions about the Gentiles? Jews called them dogs. Even though Peter no longer believes that narrative, it still has incredible shaming power. Peter knows it's not true, and he still falls prey to its power. Shades, all throughout Scripture, we see the reality of systemic, ethnic partiality on display, cover to cover on nearly every page. We see it in official laws and policies. Go read Exodus. Read Pharaoh's decree for the extermination of the Hebrew children. Read, read Esther and see how Haman's hate of one man leads to genocidal prejudice against an entire race. And watch him codify his racism into law. We see it cover to cover, but not just, we don't just see racism in laws and policies cover to cover in scripture. We also see it in systemic cultural norms, narratives, values, assumptions. Just read Luke 4. Read Luke 4 and see how the Jews react to Jesus when he places value on a Gentile widow. See how they react to him when he places value on Naaman the Syrian. Read, read Luke 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan or read John 4 with Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman and hear on the lips of the disciples them talk about the cultural norms that existed. In all of those places I just listed and many, many more, you're not encountering official laws not encountering policies, you are encountering, encountering systemic prejudices that pervade a culture. And, and here's the deal, Shades. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Why? Because we, Christians, readily see and admit to this reality with every other sin. Again, 
We treat racism differently than all other sins, not just on the personal level, but also on the systemic level. Shades, nearly every Christian I know admits that we can see systemic greed. Greed isn't just a personal issue, it's a cultural one. It's our, our cultural assumptions, our narratives about success, our, our, our values, they have shaped us and our culture in such a way as to strongly pull us and our hearts towards greed. Just go into any store this holiday season, check out the advertising. Tell me that materialism isn't systemic. Pride. Systemic. Lust. We have a culture that has commodified, commercialized, and capitalizes on lust in the billions of dollars. Personal promotion, immediate gratification, all of these things and more are bigger than just the sum of individual sins. They are systemic issues. Our culture is shaped to promote and perpetuate them. Shades, the Bible speaks this way. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to what? This world, or more literally, this present age. Do not be conformed to this world or this age. What does that mean other than don't be conformed to the systems of this world, its values, its assumptions, its narratives, all of those things that characterize this age? Is this not what Jesus himself means when he tells us, in this world, you will have tribulation, not just on an individual level, but on a systemic level, you will be opposed. Is this not the very reality we saw all over the place as we journeyed through the book of Revelation as a church? Did we not see the worldly systems themselves pictured for us as beasts or as Babylon, the great prostitute? Like the Bible is very, very aware of systems and the fact that in a fallen world, they are infected by sin of every sort including ethnic partiality. And here's the deal, Shades. If we ignore that fact and we're not aware of it, we risk being pulled along. Just look at our history. I'm talking about the history of the church in America. Shades, the history of the church in America, in this country, contains many great things, many incredible things. It also contains many horrors beyond imagining, including the embracing of racist policies and laws, systemic ethnic partiality. I'll give you specific examples. During the Civil War, Pastor J.W. Parker told Confederate soldiers, your cause is the cause of God, the cause of Christ, of humanity, it is the conflict of truth with error, of the Bible with northern infidelity, of pure Christianity with northern fanaticism. Lest we think these pastors are speaking merely of states' rights, and this has nothing to do with a slaveholding racist agenda, let me quote for you Pastor Robert Dabney. Pastor Robert Dabney, these are not like unique sideline voices. 
Pastor Robert Dabney used the Bible not only to argue that slavery was justified, but that it was good for African Americans. Quote, was it nothing that this race, the black race, morally inferior should be brought into close relations to a nobler race? He said that if black Americans were left to their own, they would tend towards, quote, lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, and waste, end quote. This is coming from the pulpit. Don't think, don't think, Shades, that these attitudes are ancient history. Shades, I grew up around people who felt this same way. I have shared with you that I was 13 years old, the first time I ever heard the erroneous, horrendous theological concept of the curse of Ham. We don't have time to go into the depths of this, but it was used as a passage out of Genesis that is used, was used for a long time for the justification of the subjugation of anyone black to anyone white. I heard that from the first time, promoted to me as truth to consider from a deacon at my church. I was 13. This is not ancient history. I grew up around people who felt this way because long after policies and laws change, systemic issues still hold sway. We all readily admit this in other scenarios. Let's think communism. Think of communist countries that are no longer communist on the books today. Is there still fallout? We would all readily point out the many ways in which they are still recovering and will take for a long time to recover. Shades, in this country, we had 246 years of chattel slavery, over 90 years of segregation and Jim Crow laws. It hasn't even been 60 years since four little girls died on 16th Street downtown. All of those girls would be, if they were still alive, would be younger than my father. Because long after policies and laws change, systemic issues still hold sway. Isaac Adams, who preached last week, he, would, he puts it this way. He says, racist laws and policies are like matches. Long after they go out, the fire still rages on. God grant us eyes to see those flames. We can see it, Shades, in how largely segregated our society still is today, including in our churches. And Shades, there are people, these are not ancient history things right here, there are people still today who in the name of Christ claim that the segregation we still experience is a good thing. Stephen Wolfe, a Christian author, published a book this year. And not from like some backwoods publisher. And he's not a backwoods author. Published a book this year entitled The Case for Christian Nationalism. Please don't buy it and support this man with your money or fill your head with heresy. 
In this book, he argues for many things that are heretically antithetical to the gospel, and among them is racist ethnic partiality. Let me give you a small sampling of quotes. Quote, our instinct to conduct everyday life among similar people is natural, and being natural, it is for your good. To exclude an outgroup is to recognize a universal good for man. He's saying our instinct to exclude people dissimilar from us is natural, so it's a good thing. Might I say on the basis of Genesis 3 that we are naturally fallen and sinful, and I believe that this is something that the gospel redeems. Genesis 1 does not speak about human beings separating according to their kind. It does with every other living thing. Plants, God says they're going to reproduce according to their kind. Animals, reproduce according to their kind. Birds, according to their kind. Sea creatures, according to their kind. Human beings, doesn't use the word kind because there's one kind of human being. This thinking right here can, does get used to push back against things like interracial marriage. Go read where Aaron and Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, go read where they oppose Moses due to the fact that he married a Cushite woman and see how that goes. See how God takes it when he strikes Miriam with leprosy. You don't like her dark skin? I make yours white and flaky, girl. It's God's book, not mine. Another quote. He doesn't just go after physical separation. He goes after spiritual. Spiritual unity is inadequate for formal ecclesial unity. Do you hear what he's saying? Spiritual unity, the fact that we are united in Christ is inadequate to keep us together in a church. We need more. What's the more we need? The most suitable condition for a group of people to successfully pursue the complete good is one of cultural similarity. He says multicultural churches, mm-mm. The fact that you across ethnic lines are united in Christ, mm -mm. that's not gonna be enough to hold you together. You need to have similar skin color, similar culture, come from similar backgrounds. You need to be a homogenous church. If that is not antithetical to the vision that we get of the kingdom of God, I do not know what is. Shades, let me say this clearly. Heresy of the deepest die, being distributed systemically through a publisher to perpetuate ethnic partiality, cultural norms, assumptions, narratives, and values. And with four stars on Amazon, I'd say many people are being led astray. Is that not the exact same thing we see in Galatians 2 as well? Through Peter's prejudice, are many people not led astray? Peter's personal Prejudice, does it not perpetuate systemic prejudice? Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, all the other Jews in Antioch, acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even 
Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Not Barnaby. Like son of encouragement. You remember how he was described for us in Acts 11? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And yes, even he was led astray. That's how strong the pool of systemic sin can be. That's why it is so key, Shades, for leaders not to perpetuate it. Like Peter's doing right here. Shades, if you were here last week, then you heard Isaac Adams in the middle of his sermon look at me directly and challenge me in this area. And as your pastor, I do not want to be like Peter right here in Galatians 2. I don't want my actions or my words to leave any room for the perpetuation of prejudice. There is a legacy of pastors in our city doing precisely that. And on behalf of my vocation, I publicly repent and commit that as long as I pastor Shades Valley Community Church, you're free to kick me out if you want. I'm still gonna stick around because I love this place. It's just gonna get awkward for y'all. But <laughs> as long as I pastor Shades Valley Community Church, this kind of perpetuation of prejudice will not happen in this pulpit. Not on purpose anyway. And if it happens by accident, I will own it and repent. I do not want to lead like Peter in Antioch. I wanna lead like Paul. Everyone else, everyone else has followed Peter's lead. Every single Jew in the room. The room is divided. Gentiles, Jews, Paul is left to stand alone and stand he does. Look back at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why not Matthew 18, this thing? Why not go to Peter privately? Because this was a public sin, publicly threatening the church. And so he called for a public confrontation. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He stood in the wrong. And Paul tells us why he was in the wrong. Look at verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This issue is not the gospel, but man, does the gospel have implications for it. Their conduct... It's not in step. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you've been eating pulled pork and bacon this whole time, Peter. We can smell it on your breath. If you are living like that, then how now that James's bros are here, can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, this is hypocrisy. Peter was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What's the truth of the gospel? It is the truth that all are accepted by God, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their gender, no matter their age, no matter any qualifying factor. All are accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by keeping the law. Peter knew that, but he wasn't living in line with that. His actions were denying it. And when he withdrew, his actions said, faith in Christ is nice, but it's not enough to sit at our table. We require something more. Peter was requiring more than Jesus. Peter's actions were anti-gospel. And so Paul stands up and says, Peter, the gospel is anti-your actions. Verse 15. Paul's still speaking to Peter right here and he reminds him of the gospel. We, you and me, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth. 
Not Gentile sinners. In other words, not Gentiles without the law. We're Jews who have the law. Yet, we know, you and me, Peter, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, you and me, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because, you know this, Peter, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, Peter, this is the gospel. And get it, it kills all ethnic partiality. For we all, no matter our ethnicity, are saved in the same way. Paul says this with even greater detail in Ephesians chapter two. I challenge you to go and read it. You'll be familiar with the first half of Ephesians chapter two. First half, it's, it beautifully proclaims the gospel. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses, but God in his great mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's the gospel. And the very first implication that Paul gives comes in verse 11. Therefore, because we're all saved that way, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel kills racism. Christ's coming, Christmas, kills racism. That's what Paul is saying to Peter, and no shades, no, that doesn't mean that every feeling of superiority, including ethnic superiority, is just automatically gone from every corner of our hearts. It doesn't mean that any more than it meant that for Peter. The good news of the gospel doesn't mean that personal and systemic prejudice is done, but it does mean its days are numbered. And it does mean that there is a fight that we can join with joy. The gospel begins the fight, equips us, and empowers us for it. And in the end, the gospel will win it. So, shades, we can stand with Paul and do what he does. Three things. First, we can know the truth so well, we can see when it is contradicted. This is what Paul does. This is what we can do. We can know the truth so well, we can see when it is contradicted. Paul knew his world, and he knew the word. He knew all the ways that ethnic partiality had been expressed. He knew the ways that it could linger, and so he was equipped to see it. And he knew, he knew how the word of the gospel could be applied to it. Shades, we can do this. We can know our world, and we can know the word. We can know the history racism in our country, we can start right here in our own city. Go to the Civil Rights Museum. 
Read Carry Me Home by Diane McWhorter. Come with us in February, Shades Valley. We are going to take with Colin Hansen a Birmingham civil rights tour. The elders and leadership have taken it before. We're going to take it again. It's going to be open to everybody. Come with us. We can know our world so that we can see things more clearly. And we can know this word so that we can apply the gospel to the things that we see. That's why we're doing this series. So first thing we can do that Paul does, we can know the truth so well that we can see when it is contradicted. Second, we can speak with compassion and conviction. We can speak with compassion and conviction. Paul didn't just see what was happening. He spoke up and he spoke with great conviction, but he also spoke with compassion. I mean, the entire reason he said anything is because his heart was burdened for this church that he loved, that he served. He was burdened for the Gentile believers who were being excluded. He was burdened for the Jewish believers who were being led astray. Shades, we can do this. We can speak the truth in love. Last week, Isaac gave us tons of practical ways to practice this. I mean, if you didn't listen to that message, go back and listen to it again. We... We, Shades Valley, we can have conversations around this subject that have a completely different tone, a completely different tenor than the rest of our culture. We can speak with compassion. Compassion was Paul's aim as he spoke with conviction. Compassion, I believe, was even his aim towards Peter. I know that because of the third thing we see Paul do that we can also do. Third, we can ask for and give forgiveness as we continue the fight. We can ask for forgiveness and we can give forgiveness as we continue the fight. So even though we're not told the end of this episode right here in Galatians 2, we're not told how it all works out, I think we have good reason to believe that Peter asks Paul for forgiveness. And I think we have good reason to believe that Paul gives it. I believe that because in Acts chapter 15, we see Peter and Paul join forces in this fight. Go read Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch to Jerusalem to debate this issue of Gentile inclusion. And in the midst of that meeting, we read, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. Peter says, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's like, believe me, I know, I've tried. And he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Peter stands. Nobody's listening to Barnabas and Paul. 
And he stands and he's like, guys, I've had this conversation with them before. And they are in the right. You need to listen. I think this is ample evidence that Peter asked for forgiveness. Paul granted it. And by the time, here's what's so beautiful. Acts 15, by the time you get to the end of this chapter, all of this results in joy in Antioch. Like Peter, who caused dark division in Antioch, he's the one right here who lights a bright candle of joy, shades, shades. At this point in the journey, joy may be hard to fill, but the gospel, the coming of Christ, Advent has lit the flame of joy and amidst the remaining darkness of the world, let's do what Peter does right here. Let's fan it. Let's fan the flame of gospel joy until Christ comes again, a second advent to bring to completion everything that his first advent began when finally this weary world can rejoice and sing again. Let's fan the flame of gospel joy, specifically shades. Let's do it around the issues of race and racism. Let's fan the flame of gospel joy so that the world, when they look at Shades Valley Community Church, won't have any other way to identify Shades Valley than those people are Christ's people, Christians. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the truths, the beauty of your word and the power of the gospel would sink deep into our hearts and our bones and that we would know that there is nothing that the gospel cannot conquer. That we would know the tomb is empty. And just as Jesus turned his own death backwards, he will do that one day when he returns with everything in this world. Empower us as a people to bear witness to that in our words and our deeds, including with how we interact with issues of race and racism. May we do so in a way that bears witness to the reality of Advent that your son, Jesus Christ, has come. And his coming puts a death nail in ethnic superiority. May we be Christians that bear witness to the reality that Christmas kills racism. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your son's name.